He was like, so I'll tell you a framework of three R's. So the three R's are reward equals responsibility plus risk. And the so here's what he explained: the reason why you should own a company. That's where he was trying to get to. So my biggest takeaway is try to do dynamic balance. Don't try to strike a balance because the balance is always changing. If you feel like you are working too much and not seeing your kids, then dial back, make some time for your kids,、um, and vice versa. Because you like things just change all the time. I think there are like gifts and takes in a marriage. There's a saying that I heard that like unconditional love is really romantic, but conditional love is very strong. It's very stable. All right. So today we have Alice Liu on the show. Alice is a HBS graduate, mother of two, and an entrepreneur in the e-commerce space. Super excited to have you here today, and let's dig in. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I've been really impressed with what you guys are working on as well. So really excited for today's conversation. Okay, so first off, HBS graduate, mother of two, and an entrepreneur. Are you just collecting the most imp- impressive titles and sticking them all in one place? What's going on? I didn't expect to have kids so early on in my life either, but they they just happen. <laughs> all right, we'll get to that in a minute. But first, the most important question, Alice. If you had to choose one food, one thing to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be, and why? Yeah, I think hands down hot pot. I have hot pot、yes. at least once a week. Really? Originally, yeah, I'm originally from China, so I think every Chinese loves hot pot, and there are a couple of good reasons behind it. I think hot pot has a lot of good varieties. You can have a lot of different meat, vegetables, which I love. Tofu, it's very spicy, and also it's very efficient. Sometimes when I go to all you can eat, I end up just having one meal per day and just get a lot of food. And I love like how it just keeps me full and actually feeling pretty healthy. So that's one side. You. That's honestly the best answer I've heard. I feel like I've asked my friends this question and they said cheese. That's the only food I'm gonna have for the rest of my life. I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, I get that you love cheese, but I don't think you're. I think you're gonna regret this decision. It's usually cheese or chocolate. Right. Imagine eating nothing but chocolate for the rest of your life. It must just be the worst possible thing for. I don't know. I imagine you get violent constipation. I don't even know how that would look, but it probably wouldn't be pretty. Don't think so. All right, cool. Bringing back the topic back to normal stuff, Alice. We'd love to get to know you a little bit as a person, and we'd love to start from the very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up, and、mm-hmm. any stories, surprising things about your childhood? Yeah, so I was originally born in China. I was born in Beijing, and at age eleven, I moved to Vancouver, Canada, with my family. So I spent about seven years in Vancouver, Canada, and I think that first generation immigrant experience left a very big impact on me. It's made me a very resilient person. So I'll give an example. So when I was living in New York City a few years ago, and when I had my first daughter Mia, my mom, my dad came to New York to visit me. And then we walked by the steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan. It's called, I think it's called Gallagher's Steakhouse, and the outside of the restaurant has this glass 
this glass refrigerator where you can look into all the steaks that are being dry aged. And then my dad walks by that restaurant and goes, here, take a photo of me in front of this, all these meat, because that's the T-bone that I used to cut when I was a butcher in Vancouver. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it really, I think it tells two things. Like when I was growing up in Vancouver, there was, there were a lot of people, a lot of rich people in Canada, in Vancouver specifically. So I feel like there was a lot of like economic discrepancy that I was not ready for. But on the positive side, I think my dad is a really positive person. Um, when he walked by Gallagher's, he was really genuinely excited to see the type of steak that he was cutting in your city. Like, of course, I took him to the restaurant to have it because in banking, I didn't care too much about how much it was. At the same time, I think approaching all the difficulties and reflecting on them with a positive attitude, that's a really important gift that I had gotten from my childhood, basically. So you were talking about the first generation immigrant experience and sort of the wealth discrepancy. Was there anything else besides the money when you were living in Vancouver, was there a big community of folks that you connected with, that you identified with, or was it, what kind of environment, what kind of an environment was it? I think it was a very friendly environment because it's very diverse. I went to a school where I think maybe half of the people, half of the students are Asians and they're like people from mainland China, from Hong Kong, from Taiwan. And then just all over the world. So I think Canada is a really friendly place. I'm also curious. So Alice and I actually went to the same undergrad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it seems like you are blending quite well in Vancouver, Canada. Why did you go to US for your undergrad? And why did you pick Washington University in St. Louis? Yeah, I can answer that question, but I love to hear how you ended up picking WashU too. So I moved to I moved to the US because at the time I think my parents' knowledge about the world is that going to schools in the US is the best. Like we picked Canada to immigrate to because it was easy. But the US in their mind is a way better place. Education is better, which I think it, is somewhat true, but also the career opportunities are way more abundant here. So I really appreciated my parents like pushing me to apply to schools in the US. And like in my in my high school class, for some reason, like we had a very high percentage of people applying to the US. So it just felt very like very right or like very mainstream anyways. But then I think my parents had their limitations. Like we didn't know how to pick schools. We didn't know how to apply, like how to apply for Ivy schools or like what leadership meant. Like how you as an individual applicant is typically compared to people who like you're evaluated based on what you're given, based on your situation. Like we didn't know any of that. So when we picked school, we like relied on our consultant to pick a school for me. And WashU ranked like, I think number 12, 13. When I I went to WashU, I felt like the career recruiting opportunities versus the ranking, there's a huge disconnect. WashU is a really big pre-med school, which I did not even know until I got to campus. Just that's just goes to show you like how much information asymmetry there was. But I'm really glad like WashU 
was a very academic place. Like people are very hardworking, people are very down to earth, and it's very different from the type of some of my flamboyant classmates that I had way back in high school in Vancouver. Wait, so you were mentioning that the decision was partly because of the consultant's recommendation. Yeah, what kind of consultant was this? This was like a Chinese, like a Chinese consultant based in Vancouver, because there are a lot of Chinese people in Vancouver who want to come to the states for college. It's a thing. It's a path. Gotcha. To all our Canadian audience, I just want to say we love you. Canada is <laughs> just as good as the U.S. in my opinion. But、uh, yeah. I kid you not. Like at HBS, there's a, like every class every year. There's a few girls who are very similar to me. They're originally from China. Moved to Vancouver or Toronto at a certain age, and then came to the U.S. for college. It's a thing. It's a profile. And it was a common path, as you're saying, because a lot of people coming from that region always saw the U.S. as a destination、yeah. for you to get a better education, better career path. But Canada was more friendly immigration-wise, so that yeah, was the like、path. Vancouver, like Toronto has some finance opportunities. Vancouver is a retirement small business place. Like some people might disagree, but in my opinion. Hey, you've yeah, lived there. I have not, so can't disagree. <laughs> I heard the、uh, the Chinese food is really good in Vancouver. So good. Seed,、yeah. why did you go to Washu? Yeah, mine is less interesting. So I actually went to Brooks College first. I always liked smaller places. Similarly, why I picked startup for my early career. Like I wanted to go to Brooks College, and and then Washu. So there was like Columbia, Washu, and a few other schools. I think Michigan University. Or like a affiliate program, so you basically spend like three years in the Libras College, <clears throat> then you spend two other years in the the big university, and you get both degrees. So usually you do like a physics degree in the Libras College, then you get another engineering degree for jobs. So wow, and, and I picked I picked Washu mostly because they gave me a full scholarship. That's probably、wow. the only reason.、Um, Good, very talented, very talented, and then pool. So <laughs> wait, but. Hold on. So when you went to the small liberal arts school, did you know you were going to transfer? Not really. So I don't know. This shouldn't be about me, but the quick quick answer is I always wanted to do philosophy. Then I quickly realized you, if you do philosophy, you pretty much have to transfer to law school, right? That's kind of kind of the only <laughs> only path that's viable to make any money if you are a philosophy major. Then I pick a adjacent field, which I think is physics. Because you know, for physics, that's where kind of things are derived from philosophy. Then I quickly realized, oh, I'm not smart enough to do astrophysics, and I was doing some kind of experiments in UC Berkeley. Then, so it's like a summer research program. But during the process, I realized, oh, actually, ninety percent of this job is actually writing programs and collecting data. It's like sounds like CS is much more useful than physics out there. So、mm-hmm. that's why I say. I'm actually gonna do both. Then I realized there's this dual degree program. So naturally for me, I have a very good grades for physics, and I can leverage that to get into this program. So that's the long story for it. That's awesome. And just so our audience knows, see, do you have a minor in something? That's <laughs> that's、yeah, so, so, so Alice. It's a running joke. I always want to mention I have a minor in philosophy because that's my real passion. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, back to Alice. Though, where were we? <laughs> yeah. So, so, what happened after that?、Yeah. What happened after Washu? Where did you begin your sort of professional career? 
Yeah, so I had only I only had one job after undergrad before coming to HBS. So I worked at JP Morgan in the tech investment banking team. So our office had a major presence in the Bay Area and a small team in New York. So I did two years in the Bay Area, two years in New York City because my husband and then boyfriend had moved to New York. So that's why I went to both offices. And I think some of the major like boosters that I got from the job comes in a couple of ways. The first, so the first one is definitely technical, like in terms of learning the financial knowledge is really eye-opening for me. Like you get to learn how capital markets work, how financial engineering works within big corporates. So I think finance is an industry that has very high barrier to entry, actually. I think when I was like two to three years into that job, I was just starting to get it, like not becoming an expert because in a lot of other fields, you can become a really good expert in five years. But banking is not one of those. Like I think technical knowledge was very specialized. So that's one. And in terms of professional development, I think banking taught me how to be a good employee, how to be a good person, teammate to work with, <clears throat> because the team structures are like very, sometimes very hierarchical, to be honest. So you quickly learn how to manage like expectations. And it's also a very high touch service. So you learn how to be very attentive to details and then maintain a positive attitude when you are very tired or like stressed out. So I think it's a really good mental exercise. But then the one thing that I learned that I didn't appreciate is the personal life that's like prevalent amongst my banking seniors. So I wouldn't go into details of the lives that I had seen in my seniors, but when I like accidentally got pregnant at age 24, that was my that was in the third year of my banking career. I was a third year analyst and I bet you like no one that young had ever had a kid on my floor. <clears throat> and I felt so lonely. There were a lot like women in banking have kids when they become VPs or like EDs, MDs. So they have kids relatively late. And I felt like when they, when I talked to them to ask about how they managed their career, they would share about like their tips, but it doesn't really apply to me because their tips rely on like leveraging the junior team so that they can manage their work-life balance. And for me, it was very, like I said, it's really lonely. And I figured out very quickly that I didn't want to work in banking forever, especially with my family, like my family planning. So then I applied to business school. Cool. So Applying to HBS as a pregnant young mother. So you already had your first daughter. Then you're applying to HBS. Why are you pregnant with your second child? What's that? Yeah, just to clarify on the chronology, I was pregnant while in banking. I applied to HBS while I was pregnant. And I came to HBS. I came to the interview after I had my daughter. I was on maternity leave. So actually oh, the timing worked really well. And I had my second kid towards the end of my HPS experience, basically around graduation. I think it's been a very lucky timing because I always tell people who are considering family, like you 
when you're early, when you're very young, the stakes in your careers are usually lower. And while in business school, I know a lot of people think, oh, like business, business school is the time to have fun or like the most, make the most out of it. But I spend a lot of time on my growing my family in business school on purpose because to me, like building a family at a time that I was the least busy, least obligated <clears throat> is, I think it's for me, is a strategic decision. Actually, Alice, I've heard that similar opinion from a couple of my friends who've had kids in their 20s, right? Sometimes mid 20s, mm -hmm. the same exact thing. They're saying a lot of people see having kids as a disadvantage because it slows down your career. And it does. But really, if you think about your career and you think you're going to be a high achieving individual, doing it early is going to affect you much less because it's compounding. Yeah. Once you're in your 30s, 40s, your career is really taking off now. Taking a year off is going to affect you much more than if you did it in your 20s. 100%. And I think at HBS, like I got so much out of it, like our family as a whole. My husband <clears throat> got into Wharton's MBA program. He didn't get into HBS. But then because <laughs> I was... Didn't get into HBS, had to settle for Wharton. <laughs> I even emailed the admissions officer to ask about the situation. I was like, I have a newborn. Did you make a mistake not giving my husband an interview? But anyway, so because I was in this community, like we we knew like how the system, how like the application system works now. So my husband then applied to the Harvard Kennedy School. So he did a dual degree program. So now he's a Harvard grad too. Our kids both go to like the kindergartens here. So they're like semi Harvard alums too. And I so I feel like that environment, like helping my kids to soak in all like all these great conversations, knowing these people, like my friends who I'm sure will be really successful down the road, I think probably will give her a lot of confidence that she's lived here for four years. So I hope that wow. she doesn't see it as big of a challenge as I did when I was growing up. Like achieving something awesome is very reachable. I'm curious when you apply to HBS, what's that like in terms of does being a, a pregnant young yeah. woman give you advantage or disadvantage? Yeah, this is a funny question. The way that the HBS admissions works, I'll tell you the secrets. So you got to highlight two dimensions. One is leadership and one is diversity. And in terms of leadership, like the type of leadership that they are looking for is the type of leader who empowers the people around you to perform better, to achieve a great collective result versus a hero. Like you did something great on your own. That's not the exact type of leadership they're looking for, unless you're like an Olympic medal winner, then it's a different case. But then like in a professional setting, usually like team, it's more like a team sport type of leadership. So that's what you want to highlight professionally. Then you got to find your diversity point. And for me, like being a really young mother was a really big differentiation. I told my mom, I was like, I think I got into HBS like partially because I have a kid. My moms don't tell other people because they're thinking you're really lazy. And I told <laughs> my mom, I was like... If anyone wants to take up on my advice, have a kid apply to HBS as a young woman, it's going to get them. But I bet you no one wants to do that much hard work. It's a lot of hard work. Wait, applying to Harvard or being a young mom? Both. 
<laughs> it's yeah. a lot. It's a secret. Like it's my secret. Yeah, yeah. It works. I mean, it's pretty interesting. I, you gotta put in the work. <laughs> I would be shocked if anyone actually goes and has a kid for this purpose. But exactly. certainly, I think the point about diversity is an interesting one. Yeah,、um, because with yeah. so much work, it comes with a lot of different perspectives. Like you learn how to be empathetic, you learn how to connect with people, you learn how to manage so many different relationships, perform under stress. So I think it's it really taught me. It's made me a more wholesome person. It's good to hear. I tend to hear that from parents. I'm starting to think there's a conspiracy where all the parents share talking points. Hey, it's But, a parents you know. club. <laughs> so, what's the obviously HBS is a very good school, right? Everybody knows it. But if you have to pick, what is the top like two biggest learnings from the experience for you? Yeah, I think. I have one big one and one smaller one. One、sure. thing is, like management and some of the technical knowledge. Like you learn how to manage. Like you, you become more aware of yourself as a person, because there are a lot of like soft, softer skills that they try to train you on. And I think I'm, I think I have higher. I think I have relatively high self awareness, so I think I was able to absorb a lot from those, and like the technical knowledge, which I always appreciate as I develop my career, like the finance, marketing, those are really good. So that's one, and the more important one is like how the society works, and also like building a network from here, and they go hand in hand. And I tell you an example. So I had I took this course about. Small company management, and then this one protagonist came to one of our classes. The case on him was about him owning a petrochemical trading company, and then he was he needed to make a decision about whether he was going to import a really big shipment of petrochemicals. And as a commodity, the prices fluctuate a lot. Should he take on the risk and make that decision? And then at the end of the class. He commented. He was like, "You guys spend so much time like debating whether I should do it, but like in reality, if you are a CEO and like most likely that you're gonna make a really big outcome of it, then you would do it." And then he went on to try to differentiate the different types of people who make decisions based on risk. He was like, "So I'll tell you a framework of three R's." So the three R's are reward equals responsibility plus risk, and the so here's what he explained the reason why you should own a company. That's where he was trying to get to. If you worked as a professional, which most people in the room at HBS are, they came from consulting, banking, private equity. Then you are making money based on respons responsibility, and respons responsibility. Is limited by time because you had to always be working in order to demonstrate that you're responsible for that work stream, and then risk is more like you're a gambler than you're making money only on risk. And then his point was that if you combine both, that you have a very strong professional skill set and take on some risk, then you can actually maximize your reward. I thought that、mm. made so much sense. And he was saying that he always travels in business class,、um, and then he sees two types of people in business class. 
one one type is just professionals who are just like working their ass off on the whole flight because they're like little rats running on a treadmill and their only leverage is time. But then it's usually the business owners who have leverage over other things and they should respectfully so because they are leveraging risk as well. Reward yeah, equals responsibility plus risk. That's very yeah. well said. Yeah. I want to ask a follow-up question there. That sounds like a very good way to frame why you should start a company. But I guess, how do you distinguish the percentage? Is it the weighted equation? Uh, how do you, can you elaborate a little bit when you, as a business owner, when you leverage risk, like what does it exactly, does that mean? Are you leveraging the risk using equity, using your money or using other people's work? Like how does it, what does it actually mean? Yeah, I think it's, it goes into two different, I think that's another way I would think about how to make money, but just to clarify on the risk, when you are making decisions, they're intrinsically always risk. So I think that just, you have to make a decision and that's the risk that you have to live with. But then to go into your other point, like how do startups make money? So in my very short entrepreneurial journey, I've quickly came to realize how business owners make money, like how capitalism is supposed to work. Well, so, please tell us. <laughs> so as an owner, your responsibility is to run a business with people, with resources, and with time. Oh, sorry, with money. So how are you like recategorize re it? Basically, you need money, you make money, you find money, and you find people. The people might bring resources, but most importantly, they bring a lot of time. If they if this is a really resourceful person, they are very senior, then they bring a lot of resources and their time is very valuable. But in essence, the society and businesses work and they business owners make money by leveraging money and people. And for good businesses, and that's like what a lot of like these managerial classes theories are trying to do is try to have self-sustaining businesses so that there are protocols, rules that people can follow to make everything more into a streamline so that the business can run it on its own. So in Theoretically, then you should, if you are a very successful and experienced entrepreneur, you want to build a company through your hard work, using people and money, and then make it sustain on its own so that you don't have to work as hard, basically, or spend your time on more meaningful things, such as driving strategies in the company, like doing more creative things. So that's how, that's a, that's something that I learned throughout HBS and also during my startup journey. Because if you don't, if you don't own like equity, if you don't have a way for a business to work independently, then you're limited by your own time. Exactly. Right? But the moment that you can get these businesses to run with minimal input from you, then there is no longer like a linear scaling between your time and the reward that can, you can get out of these businesses. 100%. And I think the, the equity and the funding part is also something worth diving into. Like not everybody has has access into capital and the capital is so important for growing businesses, companies. And I think if you are someone who's able to tap into capital, has that network, 
has the knowledge, then it's a fast track. You were saying that, you know, that as an entrepreneur, you're using money and people to create value, right? And so one way to think about that is you could be someone who obviously you're going to have a combination of the two, but maybe you're somebody who don't really have any people, any talent on hand, but you just have access to a lot of capital. Yeah. And then you can make up for it, right? With money, you can find the right people. Yeah, so it, they're in they're interchangeable in some in in some ways, right? You so you're saying money. there's a price tag on people. <laughs> exactly. And there's a price tag on people. If you have money then you can hire, if you have a really good team but you don't have money then your your work or your ability to be a leader can translate into either revenue or funding. Got it. That's pretty interesting perspective. All right, so I want to move us on just in the interest of time into entrepreneurship. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Alice, you're an entrepreneur now after working in banking and then going to HBS. What got you to decide to jump into entrepreneurship? Was it this particular lecture? Was there a moment or did you just know for a while that you eventually wanted to start something? Yeah, I hope this podcast doesn't go viral because <laughs> like I got it a second that I there was a second. There was a moment when I decided that I wanted to start something and it was for sex toys. Oh. Like I was looking at sex toys. I was like, wow, these sex toys look so ugly and vulgar. And I want to have a sex toy brand that has respectful designs for women. And there's a really big pleasure gap between men and women. So I was like, I'm going to close that pleasure gap. And I think that was really naive of me. (laughs) (laughs) In what sense? I I knew sex toys made a lot of money, but I didn't know like how, like how oligopolized the industry was and like how distribution channels are really weird for this particular industry. And the root of the problem is that sex toys are not legally allowed to advertise. So if you wanted to advertise on Facebook, you can't do that. You, you wanted to advertise on TV, you can't do that. So that's, Right, because it's more regulated. Yeah, which platform would be willing to let people just advertise these things on their platforms? And Adult what, websites, I would assume. <laughs> yeah, I've tried to do ads on Pornhub at a later point for one of the my project, startup projects. I managed ads on Pornhub. But the problem- That's a great tagline for your LinkedIn. <laughs> I should definitely add that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never heard of the uh, website, though. I'll check it out later. Oh, I'll check it out. Yeah. <laughs> With limited marketing, then if you want to sell something in this industry, you either have to be a retailer that somehow has gained, has your own audience, or you have to be really good at organic marketing, which is when I started to learn so much about organic marketing. And I also didn't like appreciate how much it costs to usually build your own product. And in this industry, people barely spend money on R&D. They, they usually buy private label stuff from China, from Mexico, so that there's enough margin to give to the distributors. So it's a really weird industry. And mm. I was like, I am not ready for this. And I like managed through, and while during this time, I actually helped the friends helped one of my friend's sex toy companies to try to come to the U.S. I still help them with branding, but it's not been easy at all. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing to to add, I guess one more thing to ask is, when did this happen? Did this moment happen while you were at business school or did it happen after? 
This was before HBS. Oh, so going into HBS, you knew you wanted to start. Oh yeah! A, a oh my、company. god! So like, um, in the first week of HBS, I went to my section, and we had this event where it's called the Ring of Reciprocity, where you just bring up your one ask that you want to ask your friends to help with, help you with. It's a moment where you're supposed to be very vulnerable and bond with each other. And、mm-hmm. I was like, can everyone please fill out my sex toy survey? <laughs> <laughs> so, like a lot of people in my year knew me as the person who like wanted to start a sex toy company, and I'm really glad like how quickly people forget at HBS because now like people don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that that's that all sounds like a fun time to me. Yeah, it real, but in like in seriousness, it helped me to navigate through the startup world、um, at HBS, make a lot of good friends. Yeah, and I gotta say that experience sounds extremely unique. Both like the the ask that you had, the industry you wanted to get into, your goal of becoming an entrepreneur, and being a young mother all at the same time. You must have been quite the memorable classmate. <laughs> yeah, I don't tell that story enough. <laughs> I would bring it up more often. Wait, so what's the <clears throat> what's the timeline for this adult toy or sex toy company? Yeah. So for the so for the first year, I was toying with the idea, trying to like learn as much as I could about how to start it. And then during the summer of my first year, I like worked on it full time, but it didn't get to it didn't really get that far. Uh, towards the end of my summer, I got in touch. I got hooked up to a friend who was who started a sex toy brand in China. So in the year following that, I helped them to try to do like marketing testing in the U.S. focus group, trying to narrow down their message and like visuals translations, a lot of, and also the Pornhub advertising.、Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I like so- I I stopped it because there wasn't enough resources and not enough funding for it. So they were、right. focusing on the Chinese market. I see. So. I guess what's your so after that experience, you started your current company. Yeah. So then, after another year after that, during which I took some gap time, I took some gap time while working on that sex toy company, and then I came back to HBS. I like even I had another internship in retail,、um, and then I started my marketing agency about half a year ago. So in the summer of twenty twenty two. And yeah, so that's the timeline. Got it. So that's、cool. what sort of transitioned you from one startup project building the sex toy brand to building this next thing to help、exactly. your friends brand. I see. So tell us a little bit more about this current project, the current company of yours. So I know in Chinese called Chenggan Tiao. What's the English name? Pole vault, I think. Yeah, like pole vaulting, direct, pole vault, right? Yeah, yeah. But、okay. our company is our company name, register name is different, but it translates、okay. to pole vault. My husband came up with that name, and we were laughing so hard when he thought about the name. I was gonna name it something else, but then we couldn't pass the trademark. Then he started just randomly thinking, and we laughed so hard. But I decided to actually use that name as like our company's brand name. I don't know. It seems like a pretty normal name to me. I don't see why it's funny. <laughs> we were just we were we were laughing so hard. 
So, but I think it's very on point, right? We were helping yeah. Chinese com. We are helping Chinese companies to do better marketing in the U.S. Because a lot of Chinese companies, they only know how to do ROI-driven performance marketing, like advertising on Amazon or like on Google, on Facebook. But there's so little branding behind it because the cultural difference is really big. So we help them do. We help them to do PR, to do copywriting, SEO. So a lot of different things, and. Yeah. Our name was very helpful for our own branding because the it's pole vaulting, right? Like you're trying to jump from one place to another. So, what's the current status of pole vaulting? Yeah, so we've started for almost half a year now. We've serviced a few clients, and I think we're getting a lot more inbounds nowadays. But we actually decided that we want to pivot to build something, build a brand on our own. While still trying to like service the clients that we already have, so that we have some cash flow, and there's some very important learnings for me. One is like how to do better marketing. Like I've learned so much about marketing over this time. But secondly, I think the marketing agency thing is not like what I is aspire to be on、uh, for a full time like lifelong career. And this is, I think, somewhat specific to my situation where I'm servicing Chinese companies who are coming to the U.S. Because a lot of times I see a dilemma between willingness to pay, willingness to pay, and the amount of control and outcome that I can deliver to my clients. I can give you an example. If it's a really big company, they have the willingness to pay, but usually their system and the procedures are so established. That as an outside consultant, especially a startup company, it's really hard to move the whole ship. If their whole company is very anchored around ROI on advertising, even if their like branding, like head of marketing or like their CEO wants to pivot towards a more branding-driven type of strategy, it's hard to move their whole strategy. And then on the opposite side, if it's a smaller company, I can probably have very good control of their process as an agency. But the problem is they don't have the willingness to pay. Makes sense. Yeah. So I, I found you... myself caught yeah, in that、ahead. dilemma. Makes sense. I'm pretty excited about your pivoting. Actually, I know you're in stealth mode, but yeah,、um, let's invite、stealth. you. Yeah, let's invite you back when you guys hit a milestone. Yeah, sounds good. I'm really excited about pivoting because. Over this time, I've learned that having these marketing skills in my pocket is not just is not only a huge differentiation for me, but also it, I don't want to be a CMO. I want to be a better CEO with that skill set. It's a、right. really big realization for me. Cool. All right, I'm gonna move us along. Here's a question that、uh, we ask every guest. Alice, what is success to you? My grandma, when I was growing up, my grandma had always told me she was like, "You gotta be happy." I didn't appreciate how big and difficult of a goal that is until I actually hit adulthood. So I think being happy is the ultimate goal in my life, and being happy requires a lot of pillars, right? And these pillars, to me, I think fall into a couple of categories. So one is relationship. Like, how am I 
how's my relationship with my immediate family members? Is that bringing me joy? So that's one. The second one is material life, of course, and the third one is personal growth. I think. So I think I I thrive on the feeling of like improvement, and I think most people do actually. So I think these are my pillars. And in terms of my specific definition for each, I think I go back and forth, <laughs> especially like on the material side. Like on one end, I would be super happy with some kind of passive income that just sustains my life, pays for my mortgage, pays for my kids' like private school tuition. That's one end. But the other end is just shamelessly ambitious. <laughs> I want to be a very successful entrepreneur. I want to have my business empire because I like derive so much joy from putting my brain to work and making decisions like every single day under stress. It sounds very, it sounds weird, but like it brings me a lot of joy. So I think I go back and forth between these two, these two states, and it, it depends on whether I'm having a good day, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I know both ends are very high, right? We're talking like pretty high target or an extremely high target, right? If you have a passive income that could pay for a reasonably good lifestyle and two kids through private school, I would say that's frankly a life that a lot of people would work full time、uh, and <laughs> still struggle、true. to su sustain. So yeah, it's definitely a very very ambitious goal. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> I, think, I think that resonates with me a lot. Actually, it's are you guys aware of the the Barbell methods of investing. No. One one school of thought is that you want to diversify so that you have consistent return.、Mm -hmm. But there's another school of thought which basically you put all your money in two buckets on the extreme end of the、uh. of the scale of choices. They call it barbell, which basically means you investing real conservatively for let's say half your money into something. Right, pays you high dividends. Uh, then you put the other half into extremely <laughs> risky assets, and, and I feel like this is like it, right? It's my my ideal state to be as well. Is I have this passive income from my portfolio that's pretty conservative. Then I can just investing all my time and energy into something really ambitious and risky, which is entrepreneurship. I I actually I first of all I agree with the concept, but I would actually say that. Your portfolio is on the risky side. Your <laughs> entrepreneurship is on the safer side. Like over the past three years, my partner and I have just like we counted yesterday. We've lost so much money throughing investments. <laughs> oh yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then yeah. I wouldn't actually say being like starting your own company is that risky because I can always see myself finding a job really quickly. Like I'm in cross border e commerce marketing. I think it wouldn't be very. I think it would be really easy to find a company that wants me to like that wants to hire me as their like U.S. head of U.S. like a, a Chinese company, and I can do a really、yeah. good job in that. So I like.、Yes. I think we're from with what I've done over the past half year, actually increased. A, my value has gone up significantly. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Also, I think. Something intrigues me in your answer to this question is your emphasis on happiness. It, it reminds me of so I'm a big fan of Aristotle, the philosopher or the the physicist. He famously said the ultimate measurement of someone being moral or not 
is actually not doing the right thing, but whether he or she is happy while doing the right thing. Because he believes that being happy is the most stable state. So be able to perform something that's moral at a very stable state is actually what makes you a consistently moral person. So I think this emphasis, happiness is pretty intriguing to me. Yeah, I definitely resonate with that. I think that point about being stable is I can see how it's being how it ties into being moral, right? I think being able to derive happiness from what I'm doing makes me a more like emotionally stable person, and that brings a lot of positive externality to everyone around me. I'm going to transition us into the next section here called deep questions. This one is going to be. A little bit unique. We're not going to talk about aliens or death. We're going to talk about the topic that we always talk about, which is entrepreneurship. You know, on the show, we we spend a lot of time thinking about how to be an entrepreneur, right? How to be successful. But why do people want to be entrepreneurs? What does it really feel like to be an entrepreneur? Can you walk us through the emotional side of entrepreneurship? What are some of the good and bad things, and what's the human experience of being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that's a very important lesson that I've learned from being in this role is that it really goes up and down. In the very beginning, when you are working either like by yourself or even with a co-founder, it feels like very unproductive time. I don't know about you guys, but as someone who's very high achieving and I'm very much like focused on execution, not being able to say what I. Have finished on a specific day was really frustrating to me. Even now, it's really hard to measure what I am doing. So in that very beginning period, I think it's naturally very low performing time, and it's something that I don't think I was emotionally ready for. And it changed after I hired someone. I felt so overwhelmed by the amount of work. So, like, I hired someone out of my own pocket. I actually hired two people. So, being able to have a team that was that I was accountable for actually helped significantly to change my mindset and move things forward. And I think. The lesson that would be helpful to potential entrepreneurs is that just try to look at things on a, through a very rosy lens. Like on a merely bad day, I usually this is the question.、Uh, this is the thing that I tell myself: if today is the worst in my next twenty years, then I would be so damn lucky. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the mindset that I have when I approach like challenges and difficulties, and it always starts in like the most difficult stage happens in the beginning, and then you have ups and downs. But I'm sure down the road there will be even more challenging times.、Um, and then the other thing is, working as a startup founder, my whole team, my family, I think there are a lot of relationships that I was like not ready for. <laughs> There are a lot of like commitments. I felt at times that everyone wanted a piece of me, but no one cared about me. So、Can、I think that. Yeah, at the time when I, I think this was two months into my into me like hiring some of my first my first two employees, I figured out that one of my friends who I hired was a terrible fit for the job, and she was just slacking off so much. 
or maybe she didn't have the skill set or she hated the job or whatever, but she was definitely underperforming. So I decided to let go of her. But there was just so much like emotional back and forth between her. Like she wanted more things. I was like, no, you got to perform better. Then I eventually thought that it wasn't a good fit. So at that time, like my husband was going through some of his career issues. Like my mom has always been here to help us with the, with the kids. And she has a big personality. So at the time I was like, oh my God, every single person wants a piece of me. <laughs> Your mom just wanted you to be in banking. And I'm sure when you quit the job, <laughs> she was like, what the hell? <laughs> I wouldn't like, I don't want to go into that whole, that big issue with my mom there are a lot of dynamics between uh, me and her suffice like, to say she was is, a source of stress at, she's at that point and we're i think as human beings like we always have to make decisions right like when you mentioned my mom it's a great example of the type of decision that i have to make there's a cost and a benefit analysis to everything i don't want to put it like in a very opportunistic way but like when we are looking at relationships that person, are they providing some happiness or help to us? And what's the cost to that? That's something that I felt like gave me so much stress for this whole process. But now I think I'm becoming better at that. I'm better at avoiding issues that are avoidable. And I'm better at tackling issues that need to be tackled early on. So you're better at spotting that difference to know what to leave what's alone and what to go after as soon as possible. Exactly. What's worth it to just let go. So when you mentioned this like emotional journey, it sounds like you go from a high achieving individual who's used to getting a lot of stuff done in a measurable way, in a way that is appreciated by other people. It sounded like there's two separate things that were challenging about that. One is you felt lonely or I don't know if lonely is the right word, isolated. You no longer had a team around you, which got better after you hired a team. And the second thread was there was no obvious way to measure your progress. So you could mm -hmm. feel like you were busy all day, but you don't feel productive because there's nothing to show necessarily for everything you've done. Exactly. Got it. The second thread is so frustrating. If I were a failed founder and I made no progress in six months, Imagine I went to a job interview and like the interviewer asked, <laughs> what did you learn from your failed entrepreneurial journey? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> right. Because like, once the business gets to a certain point, you then have a tangible product or a tangible business and you can show some graphs and some results. But I guess in the early days, there's really no such thing to point to. Exactly. It's right. Scary. So what tasks are usually involved in those early days? Are you spending a lot of time to like market research? I don't know, like putting up Facebook ads or something? That's actually very far down the road. If you're able to put up Facebook ads, that means you have a product, you have a visual, you have some money to put into ads, <laughs> you have some hypothesis about your customers. So that's really far. Like in the beginning, like trying to come up with, with what your value proposition is, like writing up a deck that introduces yourself to your potential customers or like your investors, setting up a company, <laughs> you have no idea how much work that is figuring out how to start a website, all of these tiny little things. Right. Yeah. And so I think, uh, I think Dan was telling us like the CEO or the founder of a early day startup is basically picking up things that nobody wants to do, right? That's just your day. It's like things nobody cares about in terms of can, like you said, cannot show for progress really easily. You have to do all of them as CEO. Yeah. So like, there's um, the 
Yeah, yeah. go ahead, Alex. Alice. On a positive note, though, like I love being a founder because it's given me so much autonomy. Like I talk to now that I have this feeling and I ask what other successful founders feel like their the biggest appreciation is. It's usually this, like that you get to be autonomous, make your own decisions and do whatever you want to do with the strategy. So that is the most fulfilling, fulfilling thing. Right. They so on the positive point, side, point is, right, sorry, you have a ton of autonomy. You feel this freedom, right? And this responsibility, which can be a good thing, given your personality. And then yeah. on the negative side, you have the, especially early days, the isolation, the frustration with not getting immediate feedback that you're doing a good job, that you're being productive. And also exactly. it sounds like drama with friendships. Do you have any like learnings from that? Maybe don't hire your friend. I think if you, I wouldn't say don't hire your friend, but definitely don't hire with, don't hire people who you don't know what they're like in a professional setting. Don't hire a friend who you've never worked with. You like, but hire your friend's friend or your friend's coworker, if that makes sense. I'm also curious about, as a mother of two right now, I know your husband is also doing his own mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it is he also an good. entrepreneur? Yes. Yes. Oh wow. Okay. So, He's doing search funds. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm pretty curious. How's the was that getting too personal? How do you manage all the time? Like you said, everybody wants the piece of you, right? Like you. <laughs> how do you balance relationship with your kids, relationship with your husbands? You both are super busy. How does that work? Yeah. So my biggest takeaway is try to do dynamic balance. Don't try to strike a balance because the balance is always changing. If you feel like you are working too much and not seeing your kids, then dial back, make some time for your kids um, and vice versa. Because you like things just change all the time. My kids can get sick. My work can blow up. So I think trying to strike a dynamic balance. And when it specifically comes to my husband, I think he's a very strong spouse like both intellectually and also at home. Like he's a very supportive partner. Who, he doesn't say too much, but he actually acts it out, right? He actually, he takes care of my daughter at night. He would shower her. He would put her to bed so that I can work starting from eight o'clock with my Chinese team. And my mom also helps out. Like he, she mostly helps with my second kid. So like all that is to say, I think kids-wise, I have to be like the butler of the house, but I'm not as hands-on as I was with my first kid. And I think looking looking at myself right now, if I were the me like four years ago, I would be so judgy of myself <laughs> for like how much less involved I am right now with my kids. But the thing is like, I've learned that life comes in waves. Sometimes it's just giving yourself grace as long as no one is too unhappy about it. So sounds like you have a really good husband. I want to allow, <laughs> I want to allow Vivian to listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think they're like gifts and takes in a marriage. There's a saying that I heard that like unconditional love is really romantic, but conditional love is very strong. It's very stable. I'm going like to write that Eric, down and tell that to my therapist. 
<laughs> I have so many friends, like parents' friends, who would say, "Oh, my marriage is so transactional. It's like he takes care of the kids for four hours, and then I take care of the kids for four hours. It's like that." But then realize that's what makes relationships stable. Yeah, that seems pretty realistic to me. That、yeah. the kid needs to be taken care of, and that seems like、yeah. a very fair division between the two of you. <laughs> yeah. And this is what a situation this is, right? Two entrepreneurs, both. With two kids, that just sounds a very rare setup. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody. It just、It's、sounds like you have zero free time between the two of you. Tur- turns out that their kids are also entrepreneurs. Yeah, they've started their own daycare. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you're going to raise her to be an entrepreneur as well? Hundred <laughs> percent. Never going back to the corporate world. I think I will be in banking for a few years for real. Interesting. Yeah, when I was in high school, I was like selling fake Uggs on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that should have been the start of the entrepreneurship story because、uh, it goes way back. Yeah, I should have just never stopped <laughs> <laughs> selling fake Uggs. Yeah, cross-border e-commerce man. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're good. This is awesome. Great. Yeah, right on time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so very, much,、uh, Hanson and C. This is a really awesome conversation, and thank you for giving me a platform to to just say things. <laughs> yeah, fully expect to invite you back when you hit another milestone. Thank you so much. I hope so too. <laughs> I'm confident. All right. All right, I'll see you at Hot Pot.